Welcome, everyone, to the second episode of Apple Finch Pudding, your gateway into the world of science. Our co-host for today is Robin van de Kastelen, a teacher and criminologist who is currently combining his two degrees by working in schooling for people in jail. Welcome, Robin. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine as well. So you work in jail and teaching. What do you do exactly? People who have a broad question about studies, depending on how they feel and how I feel, come to me and uh, they ask me a question mostly, how can I get my uh, secondary degree? I don't know if it's the right term in English, but in Belgium, we call it like that. That's high school, right? Yeah, there's a difference, but we could call it high school (laughs) Uh, (laughs) to make it more easy. And um, if they have a high school degree, they can achieve more jobs. So that's why it's the most... um, wanted a degree in Belgium and most people in jail that come to me don't have it yet. So it's always the first step to go to university or college. Yeah. And so it's actually most of the time to get a job when they get out. Yeah. Or just to make their prison time more interesting. And what do you do? You you help them study or you show them where they can study? Yeah. We uh, facilitate them as much as we can and studying. Uh, We are not teachers, but we try to get them into the right um, how do you call right it? Right setting. The right setting, indeed. We have like a new uh, initiative and it's a uh, science study. So just like uh, a library, basically uh, a room where they can uh, study in silence and in the prison, that's not common. <laughs> okay. So the, the only rule is just sit in silence and uh, try to study. And we also teach them how to study because some people don't know that yet. So then you function like a tutor or something. Yeah, indeed. We try to teach them a couple of tools on how they can outline a course or how they need to do the spelling rules in Belgium because they are very difficult. And those basic things are needed to accomplish their studies. And do a lot of them also go to college or university afterwards or not really? I would say like 5% at most. Oh, that's still quite good, no? Yeah, but it's very difficult to do it in a prison because you don't have an internet connection. And as you know... That's basic. Yeah, it's it's the basic indeed because you have a lot of online uh, classes at this moment and their courses are also available online. And it's very difficult for them to do that. So we play a huge role in that because we function as their internet. So you provide the courses that are available online to them so they can use them offline? Indeed. We try to make everything that's online offline. <laughs> It's like the whole opposite of most people's job. But uh, yeah, we need to do that. And is it hard to work with those people, actually? Are most of them willing to study? Yeah, most people, uh, it's not, uh, they don't need to do it. So that's a huge deal. Um, They are not obligated to study. So the people who come to us is like one of five prisoners. So that's a lot of prisoners. Yeah, Yeah. that's a lot. Uh, So we have a lot of work and a lot of waiting lists. And um, we found out that people who come to us are very motivated. Sounds good. Okay. Today's scientist is Adam Roddy, an assistant professor in biology at Florida International University. Now, I could go through a whole list of Adam's achievements, but I would rather give an example why Adam is an amazing scientist. In general, when scientists want to collect data, they learn how to work with a machine to collect the data they need. Adam goes one step beyond. He literally takes apart the machine and learns how the machine works. That way, he knows how the data are collected and when they are reliable or not. So in short, great scientists know how to work the machine. Amazing scientists like Adam know how the machine works as well. Without further ado, let's welcome our amazing scientist, Adam. Hi, Adam. How are you? Hey, Aaron. Thanks. That that was uh, quite an introduction. I was not expecting that. But it is true. 
<laughs> yeah, it's true. It is funny though, because that was not my natural inclination. So when I first started, I, you know, I'm a biologist, I'm an ecologist. I like the outdoors, but I, when I was growing up, I hated the outdoors. I grew up in Tennessee where it was very hot and humid and it was, and we didn't really have air conditioning. And so I just suffered in the heat and the humidity all the time. So I didn't like that. And then I, you know, never learned how to take things apart or build things. And it was only sort of out of necessity when I realized I need to know how these things work and if I can trust the data. And so it really came, and, and also my interest in biology came actually from the intellectual side of it, like trying to understand something, finding something interesting. And then that brought me back into being outdoors and liking nature a lot more. So it's, it's like, th I think a lot of people come at it from the sort of deep passion of liking being out outside. I came entirely from sort of the cure, the sort of intellectual side of it, and then appreciating the enjoyment and the aesthetic beauty of nature from that. So the taking things apart was actually something that's been very learned. And like a lot of things that I do, it, there's also a lot of holes in my knowledge. And so I can do certain things and then I sort of hit a wall and realize I can't do something else. So yeah, but you did it with, with amazing stuff, like with the Lycor, that's a really yeah. expensive machine. And you just... Took it apart. Yeah, I would be too yeah. stressed about that. I wouldn't <laughs> take it apart. Well, with the one I was working with, which is a very old one, it was very easy to take it apart. It's very big. This is the problem with all of our equipment now, right? Like not just scientific equipment, but computer equipment and consumer equipment, right? All the innovation is in the software and more and more is being pushed into software that used to be hardware. And so it's so hard to understand how something works. Like if you think about cars, when we were young, I don't know about in, in Belgium, but in the US cars were huge, right? In the, 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 front of the car where the engine was, was the engine was this huge thing. And the front was so big, you could like stand inside of it. And now when you open up a new car, you just see a plastic covering on this thing. Right. And like, I look at that and it's like, how do I know what's happening? And so much of it is in, in software control, which, you know, I think that's great, but it does make it hard to really intuitively understand what's happening unless you're a programmer. Yeah. Well, that's actually interesting because when I was doing my PhD, we had some trouble at the lab with Cephalos sensors. And the thing is, you don't need to know how it works exactly for the listeners, but they give a heat pulse and the pulse wasn't clean. And the hardware specialist said, you should fix it with the software. And the, the scientist said, no, you should fix it with the hardware. Yeah. Both ways were possible, but they didn't agree on how to fix it. You yeah. could do it both ways. Yeah, no, that is, that is an, that's an interesting point to be in. Yeah, where you can do it both ways. And I think ultimately what's happening, right, is we're doing both of these things, right? Like hardware and software is innovating, right? Like we can build smaller equipment because the hardware is getting smaller and cheaper. But it, it, I shouldn't complain too much because at the same time with the development of things like Raspberry Pis and Arduinos, right? Like consumer level, very cheap microcontrollers and computers, right? We can now build equipment ourselves, things that like we would have had to purchase before we can now build and program ourselves. And that's one thing that we're sort of starting to do too. And so that part is very exciting. It's just that that's where my deficiencies come in because <laughs> then I'm, I'm, I'm bad at building de novo. I'm good at taking something apart and like testing it and then putting it back together. But But coming up with it myself, it's very hard. So There's also a Belgian comedian and scientist, and he has some curry joke. It's Jeroen Bart. And when he's talking to his girlfriend and she asks, how many computers do you have? One, two, including the Raspberry Pis? 25, yeah. <laughs> something like that. Yeah, I know what you mean. I was actually going to start with my first question for today, uh, which is always the same. And it's a question for both of you, but we'll start with Adam. Do you have a favorite science joke or a science fact? A favorite science joke? No. Wow, that really, this one really throws me off. You know, it was in the notes. I, I, think, <laughs> I, I think I forgot to look at the notes. <laughs> I, um, 
Uh, you can think on it if you want, and we'll come back to you. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. I can help you out if you want to. I have a, a science fact, but it's not prepared, so I, don't, I haven't checked it. <laughs> but okay. I've heard that uh, an elephant is the only uh, mammal who cannot jump. Oh, really? I always found it interesting. Yeah. That is very interesting. It's also the only animal that collects fruit to let it... Um, ferment? Yeah, ferment. To let it ferment to have alcohol. Well, so there are other animals that do eat fermented fruit. Not that many. Yeah. I mean, primates. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But it's still a cool <laughs> fact. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, my fact for today, because I had a joke in the previous episode and I was, yeah, I can only have one favorite joke, right? But I'm going to find another joke for in the future. But for today, I have a fun fact. So, you know, your brain has like a lot of riches, but if you would even out the surface area, it would cover about four soccer fields. Oh, that's all. The surface area, that's a lot. Just the surface bet, area. Yeah, I know. But I guess I'm wondering like what scale we're looking. Okay. Right? Like so it's, it's surface, surface area and, and texture is all scale dependent. You're a real scientist, you know that? <laughs> no, it's, like it's talking about all the, thinking of all the physics and talking about the physicist that's gotten me. Yeah, yeah, no, I get it. I get it. I'll have to check, actually. There's a program in Belgium on television the smartest man alive it's translated and there was a doctor on it and that was a fun fact he actually shared uh, so my fun fact is that you just stole a fun fact from someone else yeah <laughs> <laughs> i guess that's what all fun facts are yeah well if it's not a fun fact it's something you discovered it's true that's true yeah passing from <laughs> discovery into fact yeah then i'll go to my second question unless you found a fun no okay no pressure so my second question, you are a biologist, but you have a lot of different types of biology. You have animals, plants, and also even within one topic of plants or animals, you can have seven levels. What's the branch you are working in? I always struggle to define myself and put myself into that box. I guess I would say that I'm an organismal evolutionary biologist, in particular with plants. And I say that very broadly because I do anatomy and physiology on plants. So that's looking at what are the structures and how are they built and how do they function? And that's one component, but I also do a lot of evolution. And a lot of the questions I ask are evolutionary questions. And so I sort of go in that field. A lot of the questions I ask are also kind of universal things. So things like cell size, so trying to understand how variation in cell size influences how you build an organism and then how it functions. So how that influences things like rates of metabolism or the biomechanics of it. But those questions are directly applicable to animals as well and all of life. So there's definitely part of my interest that start merging into other aspects or other or other disciplines as well. So evolutionary ecophysiologist, something like I, that? Well, I think I would have called myself that a few years ago. I think now I would call myself a plant organismal biologist because I also collaborate with people who work on genome evolution and population genetics, trying to understand how natural selection works using the genetics and how does that influence the organism. So I sort of work at these interfaces a little bit. And also now I'm doing more biophysics too. But for me, that's all about trying to understand the organism. But just to have a clear view of what you're doing for the listeners. So you work on evolution of plants, but you look at the genomics and how that affects how the plants function and grow. Something like that? Yeah, I would say that I'm very much focused on an organism. So I focus on understanding how plants are built, how they grow and how they evolve. But plants are not just anatomy. They're not just structure. They're physiology also. And they're also genes. And so I think to understand sort of holistically how organisms are built and function and evolve, we sort of have to be reaching out into all these other fields as well. 
when I give talks, I actually have this triangle that I show that I sort of made up. And if we think about not even just plants, just stepping back life, like what is life? There's matter, right? So living organisms and non-living organisms are made of stuff, physical stuff that takes up space and has mass. There's energy, right? There's energy stored in it. And there's also the conversion of matter into energy and energy into matter, right? So when plants photosynthesize, they're turning light energy into essentially storing it in chemical bonds and carbon. Physicists might have problems with the way I'm talking about this, but that's the easiest way to understand it. But then the other part is information, right? And so there's information storage and processing. And is the organism the coexistence of energy, information, and matter? Or is the living organism, is life an emergent property of when you have the conversion of energy, information, and matter? You can have non-living things that are doing that as well to some extent, but somehow life passes some sniff test, right? We're able to look at something and say it's living, right? Viruses are an interesting one, right? Because many people would say they're not living because they don't do that energy matter conversion, but they do definitely have the information matter and they're able to leverage other components. So I would put them on that sort of life spectrum because they've essentially gotten really small and they're able to outsource a lot of the other processes we would consider living. So if we look at subfields of biology, they can sort of be aligned more or less on this triangle that I show that has these three pillars, energy, information, and matter, right? You know, genetics is much more on the information side and sort of matter a little bit. Then you've got physiology, which is more in the energy matter side. And you can start to put things in these different corners of this triangle. But I think what we're really trying to do or we really want to do or should be doing is sitting in the middle and reaching out, right? Pulling on these different aspects of biological organisms. And so all of our fields, I think, are heuristics, right? They're ways of thinking about an organism because it's really hard to think in a really complex way because organisms in life is incredibly complex. That's true. You're talking about life and information storage. They have done some research on storing information in DNA. Yeah. That's also really interesting because it's compacted into a really small volume. It's extreme. Yeah. So if, if you like sequence a genome, right? Like we, people do this all the time, right? You sequence a genome and then we store that, this genome sequence on a computer, on a hard drive. And so we know how much data space it takes to store, right? And it's huge, like on a hard drive, right? And which are getting smaller and smaller, but still this is happening on the scale of, of like nanometers in every cell, right? And there's like hundreds of thousands of millions of cells in your body. One interesting question, I think, is how much information is stored in a genome? There's been some efforts trying to characterize this, but in my understanding, it's pretty hard to do because it gets into different types of information. And there's type of information that's just like the presence of something. And there's also the type of information that's based on the interpretation of it, right? And so the genome can be interpreted in so many different ways, depending on other parts of the genome and the context in which you're reading it, right? Are you reading it in a skin cell or a gut cell or a brain cell? Are you doing it in a hot and environment or a cold environment, like the amount of information can be dependent on a lot of different things. We already had a lot of information and I was just wondering, Robin, for you, is this clear or do you have questions about it? Yeah, I was uh, thinking about the triangle and it really makes sense to me. <laughs> But yeah. Uh, Yeah, because I was thinking when you talked about the DNA can take a lot of information and um, that should take a lot of energy, I guess. So maybe those two are combined then. Yeah, it's funny with some people in a bunch of different fields, we just had a paper where we were trying to think about this, this energy information matter nexus and talking to people who were computational scientists, biophysicists and neurobiologists really changed my thinking and understanding about all of this too, right? And sort of got me to think much more explicitly about this. And it's interesting because once you thinking like this, I think it does start to open up some interesting questions, right? So like one is information storage, packing all of this information down into the size of something that's smaller than a cell, right? Cells are small, but this is even smaller than a cell. And then thinking about what is the basic thing you need 
for this to be considered living. But then also things, you know, related directly to plants, for example, and I'm thinking about this because I have a student in the lab who's really interested in this, which is plant cognition. You know, so we've been talking about definition of life, but then what does it mean to be thinking and sentient? We have these intuitive understandings of what these things mean. And we would say that plants are not thinking that they don't have cognitive behavior, but then what is cognition? Are you speculating that plants are able to think? You tell me, tell me what thinking is. Yeah, I wouldn't know how to answer that. I always have that problem with the animal too because you have sea animals like a sea star or um, some type of shells <laughs> I don't know what they are called in English and uh, they have some behavior but they do not think actively as far as we know as far as we know of course yes yeah, yes yeah, so, so when yeah. you say that I want to push that a little bit so what what does thinking actively mean what would that look like to you thinking ahead of some things not reacting do you think humans are that great at <laughs> prediction we can predict, but we don't take action on it. I think oh, yeah. We're tackling climate change as we speak. <laughs> exactly. A good example. So I, th I think we're biased in seeing thinking and cognition in its material form to look like something that we do right? Neur certain types of cells, neurons, a processing unit like a brain, right? And having electrical signals. But, you know, certain parts of computing are using plants as models of distributed computing because you have all these leaves on a plant and they're all acting independently and responding to their environment and doing things very unique to themselves. And yet they're also coordinating with each other. Right. And so you have all these, it's a distributed processing system. Well, isn't um, it also like, we don't know, for example, what our liver is doing, but it's working. Yeah. I mean, on some level, right. So here's another good example. I actually just learned about this one in a plant. So we know about mimicry, right? Certain organisms are able to look like other organisms and that can be useful, you know, to prevent predation, right? Like if you look like, if you're a bird and you look like another bird, that's like a predator, other predators won't attack you because you look like a dangerous bird, right? Plants can do this too. There's this one plant native to like Chile and Argentina that <laughs> this is totally bizarre that can mimic so, and by mimic, I mean, I'm saying it changes the types of leaves that it makes, at least for other plant species. And it only has to be growing near them. That's really weird. And it's not even directly touching them. And how near is near? I, like, I think within like a, inches or feet, right? So okay. you see them growing, you know, a branch from the sort of inspirational plant and the, and, the, and the one from the mimic sort of growing next to each other. And it's different species, right? And do you have a theory on that? So when the paper was published and it was very observational and they, they predicted, okay, well, maybe it was um, horizontal gene transfer, right? Which is when genes can go or genetic material can go directly from one organism into another of a different species. If the roots are touching or something. So the roots could be touching in that way. So it could be something like that. It's, it could be volatile organic compounds, VOCs, right? So like plants emit a lot of chemistry that we don't smell and a lot that we do smell. So they could be sensing on that. But then to make that happen, right? It needs to be able to take those organic compounds or the DNA, read them or interpret the information from them in a way that then it can act on, change its development, right? So there is some really complex response that we can't really explain right now. So horizontal gene transfer, VOCs was another one. There's also some thought that it could be based on light, so which is essentially vision, right? So leaves have different colors and they shade in different ways. And so, you know, what is vision, right? It's photoreception and pattern processing, 
this is my very naive view. Um, I have, my best friend is actually a computer vision expert. Um, so she, I don't know if she would agree with me, but what are plants doing? They're sensing and receiving light and detecting it and using it. And so, you know, you could imagine a situation in which there's certain wavelengths that are coming off of the sort of inspirational plants that are then being detected, right? Because we know that a shade leaf, any shade leaf in the bottom of the canopy, the light that it's receiving is different from the light at the top of the canopy, right? Because it's being filtered by the sun leaves. So it's actually can detect sun leaves. So, you know, it could be some something like that. It could be some combination. But you you know, you, you see things like this and it's like, this is crazy. This is totally bizarre. And I was very skeptical. And then like, I looked at the photos in the paper and then I'm like, oh my gosh, that is really cool. Like, you know, it's not like a perfect match, but it's like really similar. And then you see that it does it for different species that are unrelated to each other. And then you think, okay, there's something pretty interesting and complex going on here. That is really interesting. Now we're making all these kinds of machines that are sensing what other animals or plants are just sensing naturally. For example, you have like the, the bullseye of flowers that's the center of the flower is reflecting a different kind of light. Yeah, UV typically. And the insects see this UV that is being reflected and they are drawn to it. We just don't see it. Yeah. What we see is just one homogeneous color and then, you know, bees and things see in the UV and then it's like you know, two very distinct colors. It really makes me think that like the way we interact with the world, it's like black and white TV compared to if you start to think about all the other ways that other organisms are interacting with the world. Like I, you know, I have a dog, I take her out to walk in the morning and she will just stand there and smell into the air. It's funny. We were, went for a walk the other night and we passed someone on the sidewalk and he was carrying a bag of food from this restaurant down there and i saw him coming and i saw the bag was from there and i thought oh the food's gonna smell pretty good and he passed right by us and she just sort of looked at him and kept walking and only after he was about five to ten feet away did she stop and she started smelling in the air and he was off to the left and she just had her nose like sniffing 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 and i was like well, i was watching this because that was really funny i was like it was like literally that guy right and then it took her a moment of smelling and then she tracked where it was and then she like saw him and sort of realized that the scent was coming from him and it just made me realize right like that for her it was all about the smell right and she didn't get the smell initially it was only after he had passed that she got the smell and then she was able to track it and i was like like I saw this coming. Right. And like, so, but I was all based on the visual cues of seeing the bag and seeing what he was doing and, and seeing him pass. But for her, it was all about the smells. That is cool. And actually I didn't even smell that much from the back. <laughs> yeah. You're no dog. That actually more or less brings me to my next question, especially because of the flowers. So in this branch of evolutionary biology and functioning and ecophysiology, what do you do exactly? What is your research? I guess my research has a couple of paths. One is trying to understand, like I was saying in the beginning, how are these small scale, and I've always sort of been interested in this, how very small scale variation at the cell level, how does that influence the next level of hierarchy, right? To how you build a tissue, how that builds a whole organ, and then how that you know, influences the whole organism. So what are the sort of the design rules or like, how do you trace from small scale changes up to whole large scale changes? And in reverse, right? How then does the environment or evolution act to shape all that, right? So like selection, I would say that evolution is acting on the organism and, and reproduction and fitness, but then because of you know, differential mortality or different differential reproductive success, that then has all these changes at the genetic level. And so you've got sort of this duality um, of small scale things tracing up to influence big scale processes and big scale processes influencing small scale processes as well. I guess I would say I'm sort of interested in trying to move between those 
very readily and also trying to understand something about what are the core or sort of central rules about how organisms can be built or function. Are there certain things that organisms have to do in order to live and certain ways that they have to be built to just function in the world? And then how does that constrain what they do? But then how are they able to develop all other alternatives to avoid those rules? right? To get around those constraints and still survive. And so a lot of us trying to understand what are the unifying principles across organisms? And then what are the ways that can deviate? What are the ways that it doesn't really matter? So they can look at all these different ways and respond to, you know, pollinators in a certain way, build this weird flower because they figured out a way of making really cheap flowers, for example. Talking about the evolutionary part and the rules that are occurring when evolution is happening, there was some kind of bird on an island that got extinct because of a volcanic eruption. Then its cousin bird traveled back to the island and evolution took the same path again to recreate mm. more or less the original bird that was extinct. That's very cool. Yeah. So like, is it repeatable? In that, in that case, it was, right? So that would suggest that there were sort of similar selective regimes and also that the birds were closely enough related and shared sort of similar genetic backgrounds enough that they were yeah, able yeah, to Yeah. Sorry, I wasn't path. clear. They, the bird that was extinct also originated from the same species that came back to the island. Gotcha. Yeah. 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 Yeah, no, exactly. So I, I find that very cool and very interesting, but I would say that's very context dependent. Like by no means is that necessarily a rule that that would always happen, right? No, no. And, it's, it depends on, on a lot of circumstances on the island as well. And yeah. yeah. And I think this is one of the challenges in what we do. Like, for example, I've been working on this group of plants that are native to the deserts. They're very cool. Um, and, you know, we're, we've characterized different agents of selection and how these multiple agents of selection like herbivores and drought and salinity altogether influence um, the evolution of these plants and, and whether they're speciating or whether they're hybridizing together. And, um, and we've traced it all the way into the population genetics. So we can, you know, we, we can look at gene flow between the different species and all these sorts of things. But like, you know, like next year, we did the study in like these two years, right? Like next year, it could be totally different. And so, you know, the, just like because of climate change or because of any other thing, right? Like everything is so context dependent. And so on the one hand, you know, we think about evolution being extremely slow, but then on the other hand, we also know it can be very fast. And so thinking about how do you integrate between when we can go outside and we can characterize, you know, relatively strong selection in one year, but then we talk about the evolution of species like this group of plants that I'm talking about, they're about, you know, less than 2 million years old. And it's a, a group that seems to have diversified into about 15 species in the last 2 million years. And so that's really fast, right? But then we can go out inside and we can measure really strong selection in like one growing season. And so trying to think through like, how do you go from these very, very short term, like one year studies that we do to these longer term processes and even going up to a million or two million years for evolutionary biologists, that's extremely fast. And so trying to think through that and just the complexity and the context dependence of when I did a study, where I did that study influences my interpretation of, of how natural selection is working. I mean, it sort of hurts the mind. There's also some interesting evolutionary work being done in the northern of Europe, Scandinavia. They have a pipeline running below ground, but it gives off a little heat. And they're actually checking how plants are changing because of the warming soil. That's cool. And just on that pipeline, they follow the trajectory of the plants. That's like an, that's an ideal setup, right? Because people have tried to do these warming experiments. People do these warming experiments, but it's this huge infrastructure. But this in, the infrastructure was there for you in this one. It's probably not much warming, right? Just a little bit. But that little bit can be enough if it's sustained. Yeah, I think it's only maybe a degree or something. Yeah. 
maybe two, but that's a lot of difference. It's a lot of difference. But also you were talking about the small scale evolution and the larger scale or larger time scale. What is large time scale for you as an evolutionary biologist? You know, I would say that in evolution, mostly what I do is macroevolution. So evolution sort of quote unquote above the species level. So like how whole groups of plants evolve. So for me, that's like, you know, a hundred, you know, hundreds of millions of years. That's large scale. Yeah, it's large scale. I mean, so I like, I work on the flowering plants, the angiosperms. And so they've been around for, it's debated, but you know, 160 million years or so. And then, you know, you think about the gymnosperms, the conifers, um, the cone plants. And maybe just in general, the terms angiosperms, gymnosperms, angiosperms are flowering plants, gymnosperms, non-flowering plants. I don't know what else you said. Uh, that's what I said. And then there's also the ferns. Everyone knows what ferns are, but they're all, all three of these groups are vascular plants because they have a certain tissue that allows them to transport water really efficiently. So if you look across all these, right, the vascular plants evolved. Ah, do you remember? I mean, it's like half a billion, 500 million years ago or something. I can't remember when sort of the earliest ferns uh, were recorded because um, I don't think about that part too much. Um, yeah, so hundreds of millions of years is also sort of that scale. And you said you focus on angiosperms? Yeah, so I focus a lot on the flowering plants, mainly so when I started my PhD, I started working on flowers and trying to understand flower physiology. And so this was a very sort of physiological, organismal level questions that I was asking about how water moves into a flower. And there was not a whole lot of data on it. And I realized very quickly that there were some interesting patterns among species, what we call older lineages or earlier deriving lineages of the angiosperms that are still alive today. They seem to function differently than the more recently derived species. And so that sort of got me thinking much more about evolution and trying to understand how can we use the available diversity that we have now to understand something about the patterns of evolution. So essentially it wasn't necessarily that every flower was functioning in the same way but rather there might have been big shifts in the evolution of their functioning. And so that sort of got me thinking much more about evolution and I started moving more and more in that direction. Um, and I've sort of pushed back, you know, that was just look, looking at the flowering plants and now I've pushed back a little bit more and working on uh, some of these other groups too, or starting to at least as a comparison to the angiosperms. So actually your research, you started with flowers and you observed differences between different groups and then you went back to evolutionary biology and how those differences occurred. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think I was sort of always interested in evolutionary biology a little bit. Even when you were inside? <laughs> no, not so much. Um, always, in, always in my scientific career, I guess. The, the pattern, what I said in the beginning, was very much there. I've always sort of followed the questions a little bit. So, right, I started doing physiology and that sort of got me asking evolutionary questions about the evolution of physiology. And then that sort of moved me into trying to understand more, which brought me back to like anatomy, to trying to characterize structure. So working with different imaging techniques to try to image some of these structures. And then that brought me into physics and biophysics because I realized in looking at some of the images we were producing from flowers that they didn't make sense to me how they, how they were mechanically stable. And so then that's brought me around to working with physicists and trying to characterize structure in a more physically meaningful way. And so now the physics is wrapped back around to the evolution a little bit. So trying to understand sort of the evolution of these physical structures. So it all sort of comes back. Everything comes full circle, I'm realizing, because I've... I'm now on some other side projects, I've started working on roots and I said I would never work on roots because my undergraduate thesis, I was doing root physiology and biomechanics. So I've actually come back both to the, the system a little bit working on roots, but also biomechanics, which is what I did my undergraduate thesis in. And now that's a lot of what, what I'm doing now too. It's funny, you're saying a lot of similar things as Jack said in the first episode. He also always kept asking questions and that's why he got into science. 
And he also said that everything comes back eventually and that he's yeah going in circles yeah. with new insights, though. Well, that's the thing. Yeah, I think it, it's sort of always learning. I mean, the other thing that about myself in terms of how I work is that I get very tired of things. I get very bored with certain things. And so I need to have multiple things going on. So I just sort of cycle through the different projects. And, you know, there's also one reason why I have data sets that I haven't published in years because I just haven't fully cycled back to them. I've cycled through them all already and I didn't get the paper finished in one of the cycles. No, I get that. I like to work on a project and I can focus on it completely for maybe one, two years. But then at some point it's done and I need something new and I can totally. come back to it later. Totally. Yeah, I think the problem I have is that my time span is often much shorter. It's, like, it's just a few weeks. <laughs> it does get a little more complicated. But you do have a lot of projects. We haven't talked that much about flowers, a little bit, but that's actually your main focus, right? Yeah, I mean, it was my main focus for a long time. But it's less now, but I'm trying to come back to it because I sort of deviated a little bit far. But yes, so when I was in graduate school, I started working on the physiology of flowers. And like I said, it was very narrowly focused. It was really trying to understand the water dynamics. How does water get into the flower? There was some evidence when I started graduate school that flowers were hydrated by the phloem. Phloem, that's something we need to explain. So, okay, so there's, there's when we talked about the vascular plant, Plants, right? The innovations of the vascular plants is that they have vascular tissue. A type of tissue is made of these cells that are sort of elongated and they can transport resources, liquids very well. One of them is the xylem and that transports water mostly under negative tension. So like sucking on a straw. Okay. And so the, it's very mechanically reinforced because it's under negative pressure. There's another tissue called the phloem, which is closely associated with a very different cell types. And those cells um, are what are transporting sugar water, essentially. So all the, the carbon that gets assimilated, photosynthesized in the leaves gets put into solution in the phloem and pushed by positive pressure throughout the rest of the plant to deliver all the sugar throughout the plant. And so you have water moving in the xylem from the roots being sucked up into the leaves, and then you have sugar in the phloem in the, that's being put into the phloem and the leaves and being pushed essentially through the rest of the plant down to the sink organs, like the roots and the stems that are not photosynthesizing that need sugar for respiration. And one of those sink organs would be the flowers, right? For the most part, flowers don't photosynthesize that much, but they require carbon for respiration and growth and things. And so they have sugar coming in through the phloem, but that sugar is dissolved in water. So there's also water delivery as well, potentially. And so there had been some data suggesting that most of the water coming from flowers was coming from the phloem. And I found that really bizarre because most of the water moving through the plant is through the xylem and going to the leaves is through the xylem as well. And also because flowers are developmentally very similar to leaves. They're coming from the same stem cells. And so I started trying to work on this, right? And just trying to understand, trying to figure out ways of tracking the water going in and which direction was it moving? Was it always going into the flower or sometimes where flowers moving, losing water back to the stem. And so it was very, very sort of physiologically focused on that scale. And then I realized, well, it could be both, right? It could be that the phloem and the xylem are moving water, but then doing these measurements was really doing physiology is very hard on a lot of species. But when I realized that there might be some evolutionary component, I was like, I need to work on a lot of species. I need to be able to survey a whole lot of species very easily. And so that moved me into thinking about what are some easier measurements to do? What things can I measure that would tell me maybe about xylem versus phloem hydration, but be able to do that on like hundreds of species. And so that pushed me in sort of a slightly different direction. And so I, originally I was very, very narrowly focused on this small scale physiology. And now I've moved in this direction of sort of trying to first characterize these broad patterns of traits that might influence this. We're not totally sure yet, but 
trying to understand sort of the evolution of certain traits like water loss rates and you know whether they have stomata which are these pores on the leaves through which water is lost or whether they have how many veins are in the in the flowers because that would influence how well they move water so trying to do some of these analyses that then might inform well okay now that we have these data which species might be xylem hydrated or phloem hydrated and sort of do more detailed physiology on some of that one of the issues though is that there hasn't been a whole lot of work done on the physiology of flowers the way we think about flowers has mostly been driven by some really old work by Kohlroto and Springel, who were working in like Germany and Austria in the 1700s. And they sort of went out and they just studied flowers. They, they sat outside and they watched flowers to see what happens. And they saw a whole lot of insects and animals coming up to the flowers. And they were the first in recorded science history, I have to be qualified this very well, because I don't think they're the first people to think of this, but I think they're the first one. They, they were the ones who were credited because they wrote it down in the Western canon that flowers were involved in reproduction. So they predicted that flowers were involved in sex and that it was the interactions with the, these other animals, these other species that were influencing floral form and evolution. So the sort of early ideas were that. And that idea of pollinators being the major functional and selective forces acting on flowers has really driven everything we know about flowers for the last 250 years. Only in the last, I'd say, 30 years have people started thinking about things like physiology and the abiotic conditions, so the environmental conditions that would influence flowers. So, right, you know, flowers are often put at the top of the canopy, at the top of a tree because they want to be seen by the pollinators. But that's also where it's hottest and driest. And so they could wilt. And so you might need to then build a flower that is drought tolerant if you're going to put it up there for your pollinator. So now you have multiple agents of selection that could be driving flowers in different rates, right? A lot of pollinators like bees and birds are visually oriented. And so you might want big flower displays, but a big flower is more expensive to produce. And so if you're resource limited, if the plant is resource limited, it might want to build a smaller flower. And so you have these opposing agents of selection that could be pulling flower size in one direction of the other. And so those ideas have been coming out in the last 30 years. And so that's sort of where I was plugging in is trying to understand at this broader comparative scale, what are the diversity of these traits, right? Like, can we make some easy measurements to understand how expensive are flowers? And then that could tell us something about how, how strong pollinator selection could be. Um, acting on the flowers. And at the same time, there's even more recently, there's been a lot of evidence coming out about florivory, right? So if you think of herbivory, right? Like insects and animals eating plants, we typically only think of that, you know, with the leaves, um, little insects chomping on the leaves, but there's also a lot of insects and animals that will eat the flowers. And so that also can be another selective agent that could act in a different direction. So now I'm much more thinking very broadly about trying to understand how to characterize floral traits and sort of aspects of floral function as a function of all of these different agents of selection to try to understand like, are there certain contexts in which florivory is a stronger agent of selection on flowers than say pollinators? When are they in competition or are there situations in which environmental conditions are driving flowers in the exact same way that pollinators are? So they both would produce safe big flowers. And so trying to understand the relative roles of these different factors is what I've been doing. And it's potentially important because right now there's huge pollinator declines globally because of climate change. When I was young, growing up in Tennessee. It's hot and humid in Tennessee. And so in the summers, you'd drive around and the car would be covered in bugs, right? Like at the front. I remember like as a kid washing my mom's car and like just scrubbing all of the bugs off, right? And it was so hard because there were so many. And that does not happen anymore. And so there's huge declines in insects and pollinators. And so what that means is that plants are potentially competing even more for pollinators to attract them. And so that would mean that competition for pollinators could be a really strong agent of selection on flower form and 
function, but that could be limited by the environmental conditions in which the flowers are being produced. So let's say they are trying to produce a whole lot of flowers and a whole lot of pollen because they're trying to get that one pollinator that's lying around so that their neighbor doesn't. And so now they're putting a lot of resources into producing flowers and pollen. But what happens if there's a heat wave? Temperatures are getting warmer. And so maybe they're moving beyond their physiological threshold so that they actually can't produce a whole lot of flowers. So trying to understand these dynamics, I think are important in understanding sort of the trajectories of plant evolution in the next 20 to 30 years. Oh, that's really interesting. And it's also interesting that it's something you really see in normal day life. I remember when I was small and I went to my grandmother at dusk and they had this plant, this butterfly bush it's called in Dutch and I was just catching all those moths who are coming to that bush and just putting them in bowls and then they flew away again of course but that's insane there were so many now you don't see any of them or maybe if you're lucky you see one or two Yeah. And that's such a big difference compared to 20 years ago. Yeah. So when I first started doing sort of actual research was the first summer in my undergraduate. And I was working at a national lab here in the US and they had these open top chambers where they were elevating temperature up two and a half degrees Celsius above ambient and five degrees Celsius above ambient. And they were growing four species of you know, trees in there. And I was in there to measure stem respiration. So I was trying to look at how, how stem respiration responds to elevated warming. And this was in 2003. Sorry, stem respiration. Ah, Could you explain? Yeah. So going back to the definition of life, right? Like all living organisms, this is why viruses would not be considered living. All the living organisms are respiring, right? So respiration is the, the metabolic conversion of essentially sugars into CO2 release, right? So it's like it's, we breathe, breathe out CO2. Yes. So that's, that's the product of respiration. Um, of my, mitochondrial respiration, which is releasing energy from biochemistry. So I was measuring the amount of respiration that the stem tissue in these plants was generating. And I was using a Lycor 6200. So there's a piece of equipment that you don't know too. The one you took apart? Actually, the one the one I took apart was not even a Lycor. It was actually predated the Lycors. It was okay. a, a, an old Campbell system. Anyway, so I was using the system. I have taken this one apart a little bit. So I was using the system to measure respiration. We're measuring CO2 release. And so you have to measure to know how much the plant is releasing because it's releasing CO2 into the air. You need to know what the air is. So you measure the ambient CO2 just in the atmosphere around you. And so when I was doing that, you know, I would see the ambient CO2 measurements in the air and it was like 385 ppm. And I remember at the time thinking, you know, in the, this was 2003, people were talking about, oh, when we hit 400 ppm, when we hit 400 ppm. And I remember sitting there and I was in this big field with these chambers and I, you know, out there alone all day in the hot Tennessee summers and looking up and being like, the sky is so big. I was like, it's going to take a long time before all of this goes up 15 ppm. This, the earth is huge, right? And what was it two years ago? It was 2020, I guess. Yeah, May of 2020, when I saw that we hit 415 ppm, 30 ppm. And that was just in the time that I went from being an undergrad in college to being a professor. And that's just my professional development, right? And I wasn't even paying attention, right? I wasn't even paying attention. And not only did we hit the 400, but we went, went twice as far. And so think, you know... When people, and that's something that I think I would have had to have, exper I've had to have experienced that as almost 20 years now, you know, 17 years at that time of changes to realize like how fast it is, right? 17 years ago, I didn't appreciate that. So having seen 17 years of it now, now almost 20 years, I do appreciate how fast things are changing. And I think that's something that if, and, and if I hadn't had that experience in 2003 of having that very conscious thought, I don't think I would have realized it. 
I think that's important right now with climate change, because a lot of people don't realize how fast it's going because they don't pay attention to those small signs. And as yeah. scientists, you really make those measurements. So you're conscious of what is happening in the atmosphere. Yeah. Because I also had a colleague who actually had something similar and was only about five years ago, was also doing an experiment in a greenhouse. And they had several greenhouses, one with elevated temperature, one with elevated CO2. And one of his more extreme treatments would today at that level location be considered normal now. And it's only like five or six years ago. And that was his harsh treatment. Yeah. I mean, if you go back and look, there have been some retrospective analyses done. And the one I'm thinking of was done 15 years ago. And what they showed is that all of the predictions that were made about climate change, you know, 30 years ago, the most extreme cases were conservative for what's actually turned out. So even the, our extreme predictions are less than what, what ended up happening. And the insane thing is it's in such a short time span. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking, is it possible for you guys to keep up with the new facts? Because it changes all the time. It changes so so fast. Yeah, well, and there's also this problem of how do we study it? The way we're designing climate change experiments is like the one I worked in, right? Where you had these chambers and one chamber was just ambient conditions. In another chamber, they added two and a half degrees Celsius of heat. In another chamber, they added five. And they planted seedlings there and let them grow in there, okay? That was like a big step change, right? All of a sudden, you're taking seeds that were from plants growing in ambient conditions conditions and putting them into two and a half degrees Celsius and another putting it at five degrees Celsius. So it's the step change or these big face experiments, the free air CO2 exchange experiments, where in a forest, they'll put up these tall towers in a ring and pump CO2 into the forest, right? And so they'll elevate it by twice as much. So the plants are used to a certain background CO2 or even a rate of change because it's increasing. And then all of a sudden you're just doubling it and they'll do this for years, right? And these are sort of the cutting edge experiments. But when they did this, at the, near, the one where, near where I was working in Tennessee, so they had the control CO2 and the, the elevated CO2. And for the first six years of the experiment, there was a bigger and bigger differences. So each year, the differences between the treatments were getting bigger and bigger. And then in the last six years of the experiment, it, they got less and less. And so after like 12 years, there was no difference anymore. So the question is, well, was that just a disturbance, mm -hmm. right? We think about disturbances of like, you know, we go out there and we cut some trees down or a tree falls in the forest and that creates a gap. And then you have all these big changes, right? You have all these understory species, these fast growing, you know, light loving species will go in there and grow really fast. And then they grow up and create shade. And then the shade tolerant species will grow up that eventually become the canopy trees. But that that's a process that takes years. So was this experiment really just a similar thing where it's just like response to a disturbance? So I don't know, right? Like I think, it, and I think that's one of the problems is it is very hard by doing experiments in biological systems is really, really hard because the, com the systems are so complex, right? Energy, information, matter, and like those are really vague terms. I think that all of our experiments are fundamentally flawed in some way. And that's not to say that we're not getting useful information out of them, but like, I think it does limit our capacity to understand any one of them or for any one of them to be like a really rock solid answer or prediction. And are you uh, worrying about that or are you just fascinated? I mean, I worry about it. I'm also fascinated. I mean, I I think in terms of something like climate change, I've thought for 20 years that we have all the information we need. We know what we need to do. We know we need to use less carbon. We know we need to electrify more and, and have that coming from renewables. We know that we need to eat less meat and we have not been willing to uh, take action to do it. If I can just quickly interject to avoid some backlash, because you were also talking about the large experiments where they put massive amounts of CO2 in a forest. Yeah. On the world scale, that doesn't really have an effect on the CO2 levels. 
nothing. <laughs> no, no, but <laughs> listeners don't know that. They totally. don't know the effect. When you say we put a massive amount of CO2 in the forest, <laughs> they might think, okay, so the scientists are taking care of a CO2 increase. No, it's yeah, no, no. Yeah, you go like you know, hundred meters away, and you don't even see it. Yeah, but I just want to make sure that the listeners are not totally. um, very good point. <laughs> yeah. Yes. yes. Uh, was there something else you wanted to add? I think that we have to approach our science with humility and approach the biology with humility. You know, it's very easy to think that our reductionist way of thinking that is dominant in science can produce clear interpretable results and we can make it in a way that it does, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they always have the best predictive capacity or that there's not going to be some other factor that we did not control for that could influence things. And that's not to say that our science is bad. I think it's to say that we live in a really complex world and that we have to sort of do things in a bunch of different ways, right? Do different types of experiments, look at different contexts. And so this is why replicating things is really important. And if you do your work, it's just a question that I had is like your main focus on understanding the past or is the ultimate goal to predict the future? You know, it's interesting, right? Like a lot of what I do is mostly understanding the past. <laughs> um, but, you know, one of the things that's happened to me, and I think a lot of people during the pandemic, and it's funny, right? Like being locked inside my home made me think a lot more about the world. And for someone like me, who's been thinking about climate change for 20 years and been aware of it and had these experiences of, you know, in 2003, measuring atmospheric CO2 and thinking about this, even still, I think it was being locked inside my house in the pandemic and thinking about my role, my influence on other people got me thinking much more concretely about climate change. And it has not been good for my psychology because <laughs> literally, you know, I think I have this tendency in my brain to think, like I said, think about really small things and how they have these big impacts with everything. But like, I think the last couple of years living, you know, living in my home and thinking about interacting with other people and my influence on them from a public health perspective has also made me think a lot about climate change. And also, and I tweeted about this, as soon as we went into lockdown, in March 2020, I tweeted about it. it's going to be a very good example to see our impact on atmospheric CO2 emissions because all of a sudden everyone stopped driving. And so, you know, it's got me thinking much more about is the science that I'm doing worth doing, right? I'm characterizing things that have happened over millions of years and I find it fundamentally interesting. And I think this knowledge is fundamentally important, but a lot of the species I'm studying are not going to be here in 30 years. And so we're going through a mass extinction. And so on the one hand, we want to characterize them while we have them, but then it's like, well, what's the point if they're not going to be here? And the the likelihood of saving them is very low. So then the question becomes, well, what is the work that I think would be more interesting and useful? And so I have been trying to think much more about that. So thinking about sort of like next things that I'm starting, like what do I want that to be? And what are the important ways of spending my time essentially? And do you have like a practical example of that? You know, one thing is even within the basic science part, thinking about what are the biological systems with the plants that I'm working on. So I live here in Miami in South Florida, right? And the predictions for sea level rise are not great for Miami. And, you know, we know that one of the things that helps sea level rise, and especially storm surges, are having a lot of like mangroves living on the coast, right? And so I've been trying to do more work on mangroves to right now just understand sort of their basic physiology. And so moving in that direction a little bit more and working with people who are more directly working on that. So it's been, it's a very slow process, you know, um, but I've, I have been trying to think about this much more directly. Uh, well, that actually brings me more or less to my next point. So you are a professor, so I assume you want to stay in academia, but what do you like so much about academia that you want to stay in it? Or what the, don't you like about it? I like the freedom to think about a lot of different things. And I do find this, the biology very, very interesting. And so I really enjoy having, getting to think about that. You know, it also fits my personality because of just like the time in which I, the way I work um, is not always like structured really well. Um, and 
I think that that fits me very well. Like having to keep a sort of nine to five job, I would find very difficult, but I have a lot of flexibility. You know, I will wake up really early in the mornings and work a lot then, but then sometimes I really conk out in the afternoon. And so I sort of like that structure. Some part of my job is going outside and getting to see the plants. Like that is my job as to being outside doing measurements. And so I really enjoy that a lot. And, you know, I, I like what I do. I like getting to talk to people who are interested in things. I like getting to talk to a lot of different people. I like teaching. I learn so much when I'm teaching to other people. Having to explain something is... I'm not great at it, but it forces me to be better. And I think as you've seen talking today, like I tend to talk very abstractly. And so that I think that can be really hard for students. Um, and so it, I have been forced to be much more concrete about what I mean. That's good. Yeah. So I mean, I feel like I'm constantly being challenged with new things. So that that's really nice. You talked about how things were different when you were a child and you were more indoors. So I assume you didn't want to be a scientist when you were a kid. I wanted, you know, I knew no scientists when I was growing up. I did not, I never heard of a PhD, never met any with the PhD, the sort of prestigious science things that I knew about were like medicine, right? So I wanted to be a doctor growing up. Um, and then I did the summer program when I was in high school that took me to the deserts for the first time in Arizona. And it was my first time being west of the Mississippi River, seeing a system that I'd never seen before. And it was mind blowing. It was there that I decided I wanted to be an ecologist. I was like, there's so many more interesting and more important questions to deal with than medicine. I'm not trashing medicine by any means. I just realized that's not my personality. That's not what I want to do. And then, you know, it's all kind of a moot point if we can't live in the world. So that's very true. And if you weren't a scientist, what would you be? So I was also really interested in religion. And in college, I studied both biology and religion. And I also got really into oral history. And so I think in a parallel universe, I might have become an oral historian. And I think I still, in this universe, I would have done it. The question of how do you make a living doing that had been a little more clear to me, but it was not clear. And, you know, we've invested a lot in science STEM education in the US and, and building the pipeline so that undergrads can get money to do research. And I come from a pretty modest background. And so for me, I needed to have be paid. I couldn't do anything for free. I couldn't do free internships. I needed to be making money. And so starting in, in college, I was able to get summer internships, internships that paid me really well, paid me better than being a graduate student. And so I realized, oh, I can be able to support myself doing this. And I also realized at some point in college that my brain is much better at the biology than it was at doing the religion stuff. But I find I found religious studies very interesting. That's a super interesting answer. I didn't expect that from you, actually. I like people, despite being a total misanthrope, I, I'm very interested in people's stories and why people do what they do. Don't underestimate yourself as well. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and there's like, I don't know, maybe a connection between them. It's like passing through information. Yeah, totally. I'm also not a big fan of, like I said before, sort of the intense reductionism that we use in science. And I think that thinking more about narrative and other ways of thinking and representation changes our work or could change our work for the better. Actually, I have a similar question for Robin. If you were a scientist, do you know what you would be? I guess I'm, I'm more into social science. When I studied criminology, I had a one theory where I was very intrigued to, and it's the broken window theory. Mm. And it's like... I, I don't know it actually. Can you... Yeah, it's really easy to explain. So if you have a street and there are a lot of broken cars and broken windows, and it's very literal, literally broken windows, then you see that there is more crime, more small crime in uh, those streets. And if you fix those things, those crimes, they don't show up in the same street, but yeah, there's a theory that they just move to another place. It's basically the influence of the environment on the behavior of people. We have some studies that show that if you use a different type of lighting in the street, 
street, like green light instead of the mostly blue lights, I guess, that people are tending to feel more calm. All those things I find very interesting and it doesn't really give an answer to the whole crime thing, but it can explain a small portion of that. And I guess that's very interesting. Yeah, it's interesting to think about that lighting when I hadn't heard that before, but it makes sense, right? Especially with all this, you know, my monitor has this like low blue light mode, right? And so it's interesting to think about the way in our built environment, we've built so much of the way we work and live that does not promote health and behaviors that we want. Yeah, that's like nudging, I guess, uh, yeah. is the, the right term. It's very interesting too. It's social science where you can put like small details into an environment which um, affect on the behavior. So some yeah. person, like giving free water next to a Coca-Cola vending machine. Right. I guess that that's kind of nudging into the more healthy choice. And all those things interest me a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is really interesting. You would be able to work well with Adam and the parallel universe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even in this universe, I find this stuff very interesting too. <laughs> I mean, this is one thing that I love reading and thinking about social systems and politics and economics. Thankfully, I enjoy it, I think, because it's a hobby. It's not the work. Well, that's often the thing, right? Something is fun when you don't have to do it. Yeah. When you're allowed to do it. One more thing. We have talked about a lot of different things. Do you have one major take-home message for the listeners? Something that we talked about or something that we didn't talk about, but that you're just thinking of right now? I think one thing that I think a lot about that I wish people writ large understood or appreciated more is context dependence. And it's funny coming from someone who says that they work on trying to understand sort of fundamental rules, right? But context dependence, I think is really, really important, right? That there's not always a perfect solution or there's not always a clear right. That often these things depend on the social context you're in, the ecological context you're in, right? Like what is the most fit plant depends on whether you're in a desert or a rainforest, right? And so understanding or, or at least we're appreciating context dependence and, and willing to sort of step out and appreciate that there's other factors than the ones we are often thinking about can really matter and influence the situation. That's a really nice message. So I guess that was the recording for today. Thank you, Adam, for explaining. Thank you, Robin, for the questions and the extra information. And we'll uh, see you again for the next episode of Apple Finch Pudding. Thank you.